Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Buy Save the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, Kaya, and Sam, as usual, talking about the news that you might not know that happened this past week from uh, going back to school and teachers unions and districts and parents working together to police discipline records, election delays, and some facial recognition news. Netta joins us again to update us about developments around the current protests. And then I sit down and talk to Zoe and Emma from Emilio, the nonprofit that allows families to communicate with incarcerated populations that is a nonprofit in disrupting the space. My advice for this week is to go where the love is. So the internet is full of feedback. Sometimes the feedback is positive. Sometimes the feedback is negative. We are primed to let the negative feedback really sit with us and we sort of internalize it. Not only do we need to not spend as much time taking all those views in from the internet, but we also just need to go where the love is, right? Just like be in places where the love is so you can do your best work. Let's go. Loved ones, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me at Diara Ballinger on both Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter. So I think we're going to kick off today talking about sports. So evidently, a couple of seasons have started, maybe more. Uh, my colleagues here on the pod have been talking about it on our group text. I'm a little bit out of the loop, so I'm looking forward to hearing what their perspectives are in terms of some of these seasons starting and some of the different issues arising with the start. I think Kaya is going to kick us off in talking about this. So I think the interesting thing that's happening in sports is all of these players who are kind of reclaiming their power and telling these leagues, no, they don't think it's safe. You see football players in the SEC, which is one of the most powerful college football conferences, they decided to reopen their season and the, and the football players are saying they don't feel safe and they don't think that they want to come back. The Pac-10 conference, those players issued a huge statement, hashtag we are united, and they lay out all of the reasons why they don't feel safe coming back. And these young people want to be safe. They want to protect their families. They want to retain their eligibility. Um, they want to retain their scholarships. They want to be able to negotiate. They're being asked to sign waivers and things that limit the NCAA's liability um, on what happens. And literally in the SEC thing, they said, sure, it's inevitable that there are going to be cases of COVID and they're asking the people to come back anyway. And these young people are standing up and saying, not today. So I think it's particularly wild to see this in the context of sort of international sports. So I am like a, a soccer watcher. I've been watching soccer for a long time, especially uh, so like the Premier League in England and the Primera in Spain. So seeing sports just continue, like nothing is happening, nothing is wrong. Folk, like the players are still playing. The games are on every week in Europe. And then seeing that juxtaposed with what's happening right now in the United States with COVID continuing to be worse and worse and worse, it seems, every single week with players feeling like it's not safe for them to even be participating in playing at all. Uh, and then seeing how the leagues and schools are sort of playing a role in pressuring players to play when they don't feel comfortable playing is wrong, right? I think we should call out that that's wrong. It's especially wrong given that you know, for folks who are playing in college, like they're not even getting paid for their labor, paid for the sacrifices and the risks that they're taking to participate. So, I mean, all of that is really, really sad to see. And it's especially jarring to see that juxtaposed with what's happening uh, abroad. I, if anything, this has all been a reminder to me of the way money works. Like that these are billion-dollar industries, and they are less worried about the player's safety, the player's health. You know, I think about the one NFL player. I, you know, I don't follow sports, uh, but I was, I was watching on Twitter, and he was just like, I wasn't there when my child was born. I have family members who are sick. 
I can't put people over it. Like, I got to choose me once because I've always chosen the league. And you're like, I get it. And the league is certainly not choosing your interests. Like, they are not doing everything they can to make sure that you're safe and protected. The NBA seems to be sort of the most progressive in this regard by putting the players in the bubble and being really aggressive when people uh, go outside of the bubble. But, you know, unlike public education, which we talk about every week because we need to talk about every week, the sports people can control every single factor, mostly with regard to the sports world. Like they can test people. You think of the NBA had the rings, like they gave everybody the rings to test their temperature to make sure they were monitored. Uh, And you think about like some of these sports just need to wait and like it will be a huge financial loss for them. But the thought of players dying so that people can be entertained with a game just seems so wild. Um, Well, y'all, that was super insightful. So thank you for that. Let's get into some other news from the week. There was lots going on. I'll start my news is about schools and school reopening because that is the hot talk, at least uh, it's on the minds of parents and students and teachers and governors and your president and all kinds of folks. So the New York Times had an article this week uh, which highlighted the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, which is the second largest teachers union in the country, um, which authorized its state and local chapters to strike on Tuesday if their districts don't take sufficient precautions to uh, protect their safety. And that seems quite reasonable, especially given our conversation just about the football players and the basketball players. However, um, what this article helps us understand is that teachers unions are actually playing a pretty powerful role in determining how public education moves forward, and not everybody is seeing all of the ways that plays out. It seems the critics of the teachers union will say that teachers unions are trying to have it both ways. They are reluctant to Uh, return teachers to classrooms. And at the same time, they are resistant in many districts to providing a full day of remote learning via live video. And so what the teachers union is saying is that teachers should not be required to teach a full day on video for a number of reasons. Uh, They say that teachers have already gone above and beyond this past spring to work much harder than they had ever worked before doing things like providing tech support to families and being on the phone late at night with students and families, answering emails and texts. And it seems that as they negotiate what teachers' job responsibilities are for the coming year, the biggest point of contention is how many hours a day teachers should be required to teach via live video. Now, the unions are saying things like, Many teachers are uncomfortable showing their homes on camera. In Sacramento, the district asked to record the teachers as they're teaching live so that families and students could have access to the lessons at times when they're convenient. And the teachers union says, well, that could be a violation of privacy because their likenesses can be posted and viewed without permission. In many places, the union is actually asking that more paper materials go to students because virtual is unfair for students who don't have laptops and internet. Yet, there's all of this research out that shows that the districts that provided mostly paper were providing less rigorous uh, work for kids, unchecked work for kids, and that usually happened in districts that were heavily minority and low-income kids. In Marietta, Georgia, where there's no collective bargaining, there's tremendous flexibility around assigning teachers. And so in Marietta, they are making sure that their educators who have demonstrated the most skill with engaging students online, that those are the teachers who are doing remote learning. And in Miami-Dade, they don't want the teachers who, who are best with kids online to do that. They want the teachers who have health concerns to get the first opportunity to work from home, regardless of their level of engagement. I think the biggest example, sort of one of the most egregious examples, is what's happening in New York City, uh, where the union president actually negotiated the partial reopening with the chancellor and the mayor. And they negotiated, you know, three days a week of in-person learning. 
And then he turned around and told his teachers he doesn't think it's safe without more funding for nurses and upgraded air filtration systems. Now, how long is it going to take us to upgrade all of the air filtration systems in New York City? Oh, till like the ninth of never, right? And then he says, I'm prepared to do whatever it takes. The city had already agreed to their demands for masks, social distancing, allowing teachers over 65 and those with pre-existing conditions to work remotely. They got to this deal on these three days a week. And he turned around and said, it isn't fair. And I think parents are saying this is not enough. Um, in Miami, for the spring, they were teachers were required to work only three hours, a minimum of three hours. And that didn't have to be teaching. It could be answering emails and texts. And so this fall in Miami, they'll have a regular seven-hour and 20-minute schedule where each class is being taught by a teacher on video. In, in New York, many teachers are applying for medical exemptions who don't need it. Some teachers are asking parents not to send their children back. And so there is this huge tension between what, in some cases, the union is advocating for, in some cases, what districts and parents want and need, and in many cases, what teachers want and need, because teachers are not monolithic. And for every teacher who doesn't want to go back or who wants to work a shortened schedule, there are lots of other teachers who are excited to go back to school and see their kids. And so again, I mean, I, I feel like I keep on saying the same thing. There are no exact right answers, but I will say that we have to have honest actors if we're going to solve these problems together. The only way that we're going to get to something good for kids, right? The best teachers teaching in front of them, giving them the most instruction as possible during a school day because that's what our kids need, relationship building, even if it is just online, our union has to be a partner with us in that. Um, my favorite quote, and I'll wrap up, is from a parent who literally as she heard this thing unfolding, she said, look, we all know there's a pandemic. It's affecting everyone. You can't just keep saying you're scared. We're all scared. And that's true. We're all scared. But we all have to work together in order to give our young people the kind of education that they deserve. That means that we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to make difficult decisions. It's not going to be as cut and dry as possible. But I think the way we win, I think the way that we do hard things very well to ensure what's best for our kids, our teachers, our families, everybody, is for us all to come to the table, all partners coming to the table, um, operating as best as they possibly can, making sacrifices and doing the work together. That's what our kids deserve. You know, I, I hadn't even considered the idea of, uh, like at scale, what it would mean, and this is such a district thing, about uh, not wanting to show your home as a teacher. Like, I hadn't even thought about that. You could put up a Zoom background, right? The district could give you a Zoom background and you could put that up. Nobody has to see your house. Okay, good, Kaya. <laughs> uh, problem solved. So I think you're right. I think that we have to, that everybody has to come to the table just ready, right? And like ready to figure out, given that there is no easy answer, there's no silver bullet here, like what, what the what is. I'm interested in how we, you know, we've been talking about budgets around policing for so long, but I just don't know when the hammer is going to hit around like the budget in general. That like, who is paying for bus drivers? I don't know how long you keep the bus drivers on the payroll when school doesn't. Like, what do they do? How long? Like, even the custodians. And like, my sister's a principal. I have a lot of friends who are principals. The custodians have a lot of work to do in the anticipation of school opening. But if school doesn't open, like, do you keep a full roster of custodians? School nurses. What do a district full of school nurses do? If there's no school, and I'm sort of, I say these things neutrally about whether it opens or not, but just like the sheer amount of the workforce that is still employed at the same level, given that like city budgets are going to be devastated and there won't be enough sort of private money to offset that. So we'll have to figure out, do we take it from another part of the city? But like, you know, you think about the economic toll that everything being closed has put on cities. It's like, there just will be less money. Like they are going to be giving it out to small businesses and like the cut's going to come somewhere. And I think that we are all not being honest about when it's going to hit public education. I think that everybody's punting because we're like, oh, the kids, the kids, the fall. I saw that union, one of the articles had a, a quote from the union person of uh, the bus drivers union. And I'm like, buddy, I want to talk to you so we can strategize because I don't know what's going to happen to the bus drivers. Like 
the last thing I'll say is that bus drivers are hard to find in school systems. There are not a million bus drivers out there. And if they go work for public transportation or whatever, you will never get those people back. There are just not as many bus drivers as you think. And I just think about that as like a good example of like the long-term effects if we don't get in front of some of the budget cuts that are going to happen could be really devastating for when schools actually do reopen. So my news is about New York City, where uh, recently state legislators repealed 50A, which was a provision in state law, one of the most secretive provisions around police misconduct records in the country uh, that sealed all records of police discipline and misconduct allegations against officers and prevented the public from getting access to that for years and years and years. And finally, legislators repealed 50A granted public access to the records. And almost immediately after that happened, Bill de Blasio promised that they would make these records public and was going to create a misconduct database, sharing information about police misconduct in collaboration with uh, the CCRB, the Community Oversight Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City, which uh, has oversight of the police department. Then the police union sued. Uh, and they sued to block release of these records. And uh, this past week, a federal judge uh, granted uh, a motion to actually hear this case, put the order to actually lift those records and grant public access to those records on hold, um, said that groups that had already received the records, like the ACLU, uh, were not allowed to release those records publicly. And now this is all caught up in the courts, uh, where essentially the courts are saying they're not sure and they need to hear the police union's side of this argument around whether they believe it is safe uh, and uh, won't compromise an officer's privacy for the public to know uh, that they have a pattern of misconduct allegations against them and that they're still in your community and that somehow that should be open to debate in the courts, uh, whether you can get access to that information. Now, mind you, there are already at least 12 states uh, that make all records or almost all records of police misconduct public already. It's considered public record. You can submit a request, get access to the records. There are examples of big cities like Chicago that uh, because of the work of the Invisible Institute, uh, their records of police Misconduct are all public in a searchable database uh, where by officer name, uh, you could see what allegations are against each officer, what discipline happened as a result, etc. But in New York right now, that is still held up in the courts for now. And what's interesting about this is in the context of that, ProPublica released a lot of these records on their own. So they got access to these records uh, before uh, the legal fight and decided to just release them. Uh, and so there is now a huge public database uh, of over 4,000 officers uh, who have had misconduct allegations made against them and had at least one of those allegations substantiated. Um, so again, this is 4,000 NYPD officers that for the first time were able to see their records of misconduct and allegations against them. But again, there are 36,000 officers at the NYPD. There are a lot more officers that have allegations against them than have been made public uh, because the only data that ProPublica was able to get access to via the CCRB was records of uh, misconduct against officers who had allegations substantiated. And only 6% of allegations against officers in New York City are substantiated. So a huge proportion of records against officers is still secret, is still held up in the courts, uh, whether or not that can be released. Uh, but this is a start. It is huge progress over just where we were a month ago, um, with none of these records uh, being able to be released. Uh, and so you know, we'll keep watching and see what happens, but this is a start. Sam and I actually met with uh, the New York City Comptroller pre-pandemic, uh, and we were pressing him to release the officer and allegation data for all the settlements. So New York City settles on average about $200 million because of the NYPD every single year. Yes, that's $200 million per year. It's been as high as $300 million in a year. So that's a lot of data. That means that there are a lot of people suing the NYPD every year. That means that there something went wrong, which is why they're settling. And we want to know who those officers were. We want to know why they settled. We want to know where the allegations happened so we can like map that around and pair that up with discipline data. So if anybody knows the New York City Comptroller, if he's your cousin, your friend, your client, <laughs> your colleague, please call that man. Call the New York City Comptroller and tell him to release the settlement data. You know, he's one of only three elected officials in the city of New York. He has the power to do it, uh, but very few people have the courage to stand up against police unions and for the public in these moments. And like, this is a moment where we need courageous 
leaders. So again, if your cousin, colleague, friend, partner is a New York City comptroller, please call him. Okay, I've already been given a talking to about talking about Trump on the pod, but it's not really about Trump. It's about all these nuggets of information that came out through this particular op-ed. So this op-ed was written by Stephen Calabresi. The op-ed was in response to President Trump's tweet, which he tweeted on on July 30th. With universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. So even before I go back to Stephen Calabresi, I just love this tweet because absentee voting and mail-in voting are the same thing. But anywho, so going back to Stephen Calabresi, this is why this is important. Everyone's like, why, why do we care who is this man? Well, he is a co-founder of the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society was founded in 1982 And its members are law students, legal scholars, lawyers. Many say that it's basically like a pipeline for like conservative judges to the Supreme Court. The last appointment being Brett Kavanaugh, who has been a member of the Federal Society since he was in college. Right. Okay, so they're super right wing conservative organization, which this guy is the co-founder. So this tweet, though, sent him off a ledge. He just is so upset so upset that he wrote this op-ed in the New York Times in which he said he is so appalled in that a delay in the elections would be illegal, unconstitutional, and without precedent in American history. I just find this fascinating, one, because he's appalled four years in, but also because it does hint at what's happening within the conservative party and that there is schism happening and it's perfect timing because we're 90-something days out from the election. So just to further talk about Calabresi, so he he's voted Republican since 1980. He wrote numerous op-eds and articles basically protesting Robert Mueller's investigation. He also was against the impeachment of Trump when it came to withholding aid to Ukraine. So all that to say, the fact that he said, this is when homeboy really went in, he said this latest tweet is fascistic and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again, by the House of Representatives and removal from the office by the Senate. So he also gave us a little kind of like knowledge in terms of like election law and historical context around election. So we know that Election Day was fixed by federal law passed in 1845. Also, the states are the only ones that can dictate how basically the electoral process happens in their states. And the other thing that he lifted up, which was interesting, just in terms of Trump's removal, if Biden is elected, is for us to remember that the Constitution itself in the 20th Amendment specifies that the newly elected Congress meets at noon on January 3rd, 2021, and that the terms of the president and vice president will end noon on January 20th, 2021. So even if President Trump disputes a lost election, his term would still be over on January 20th, 2021. And if no newly elected president is available, Nancy Pelosi becomes acting president in all her wonderful suits. She would have some badass suits if that happened. So just to let y'all know, that would be the order of events. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. Well, one part we want it to come to. I just thought that was a fascinating article and just occurrence this week. Obviously not fascinating that Trump tweeted something wild, but that someone that is this established on the conservative side had this type of reaction. I just think, um, I hope it, it builds momentum. Yeah, I know we don't talk about Trump a whole lot on here because he's been talked about everywhere else all the time, but it is clear that him and his sort of team are escalating this war on mail-in voting and are doing it in ways that are really, really, really dangerous. Um, So his appointment to lead the U.S. Postal Service. Um, And now we're seeing examples of mail just taking longer to deliver, taking weeks to deliver to particular places that just happen to be places like Philadelphia and places in swing states that decide elections. Coupling that with sending in troops and threatening to send in troops to key areas across the country um, that also impact elections, threatening places like Detroit and Philadelphia and and uh, sending in troops across, you know, to many different cities, Milwaukee, across the country, that like literally black communities that will decide elections. Um, and 
that, you know, that is almost, I mean, it is almost a war on the vote, right, that we are seeing from this administration, particularly against black folks, particularly against students, particularly against folks who cannot uh, or don't feel comfortable leaving their house to wait on a line for three hours to cast a ballot when they frankly shouldn't have to, where the system should make it just as easy to cast a ballot as it is to do all of the other things that we've been able to do um, and that we've had to do in many cases remotely, in many cases uh, virtually, in many cases um, without exposing ourselves uh, to the greatest extent possible to a virus and a plague, right? And I think that that is asking people to have to brave all of that to cast a ballot is not fair and it's not necessary if you can actually build out a system um, that can deliver uh, mail-in ballots that doesn't obstruct your ability to cast ballots through various state laws, particularly in uh, Republican states that, you know, for example, in Texas, make it possible for you to vote absentee if you're over the age of 65, um, but not if you are a young person. So I don't understand. There are so many different barriers and layers to this that now the Trump administration is compounding by impacting the USPS, by impacting people's uh, beliefs about what is possible, whether mail-in voting can even work, whether it's worth it for them, whether it is a system that they should be participating in. Um, and all of that impacts elections and can set up a really dangerous and unpredictable election night um, that is an opportunity for somebody like Trump to cause more chaos and confusion in the effort to keep himself in office. A new poll that just came out from Morning Consult just in the past couple weeks noted that the U.S. Postal Service is the most loved brand in the United States ahead of Google, UPS, Amazon, and Netflix, uh, when based on factors such as favorability, trust, and community input. Sam, what you just said about the Postmaster is really fascinating to me. You know, I didn't know until recently in really preparing for the pod uh, that he is proposing to close locations all across the country. 40 post offices are apparently slated to close in New Jersey alone. That's wild. He's proposing to cut overtime, just cut it, like no more overtime, and also to just slash the transportation routes. So it will be, you know, Sam, you said it perfectly, a war on the vote is it. And, you know, if he would, I don't know, I think we talked about it, but it was reported that Trump said he sent those troops into Portland so he could create viral content for the internet. If he will do that, I mean, he will do anything. And I could definitely see it two weeks out from election day, a month out, post offices across the country close. It'll take so long for the Democrats to be able to structurally do anything in response to that. Even a court case will probably be slow by the time he does it. It just reminds me, too, of the work of, you know, by the time you hear us again, there will probably be a VP nominee, maybe. But when Biden and whoever walks into that White House, the cleanup work is going to be a lifetime work. I mean, they are going to have to do so much in that first 100 days or that first year just to get us to some sense of stabilization. And like, who would ever imagine that we do a mass closing of post offices? Like not for any real reason, but because you are trying to delay the vote is sort of, um, I'm like shocked by it in a context where we really shouldn't be shocked by anything. What's so interesting to me is that one, I don't understand how closing post offices and cutting transportation routes and cutting overtime actually makes the post office more profitable, right? The point is in doing all of these changes and overhauls is allegedly to improve service and whatnot. But I don't know how you improve service when you have less serviceability. Um, and so to me, it's super obvious that this is all about suppressing the vote. The Mr. Trump trusts the mail to get you your $1,200 stimulus check, right? We trust the mail for us to pay our taxes through the mail. We trust the mail for all kinds of things. And so why all of a sudden we wouldn't be able to trust the mail for voting seems interesting at this particular point. And it's not just about that. I mean, there are so many people who are going to be affected in terms of medicines that they get and all kinds of things. And so I think it's an assault on the vote, A, number one. I think it's also an assault on people who don't have other options. And we know how those people look. We know where those people live. Um, the people who stand to lose the most from this, from the vote and across the board with this male stuff, are poor people and people of color. The other thing that I read a lot about was what happens if Trump stays an extra day or an extra two days? And people are like, he will be a squatter. He will be forcefully removed from the White House. He will no longer be president. 
And let me tell you, I'm looking forward to the day that people like somebody like escorts him out of the White House. You know, it will be it'll be interesting to see what the armed forces do, because by then they will still be his people. Like there's no way a new Congress will have installed new anybody uh, by January 21st. So thinking about like, what would that look like? I'm just interested in. I mean, the insight I've had into DOD and also our intelligence community is they are ready for him to go. And have been for a very long time. And Secret Service as well. These are institutions that are established for decades and decades and decades that have protocols. Protocols are in place. Let's pray. He he can be in there. He can have it. He can have that White House. I'm sorry. We can go. We can just build the White House. We can build a Black House on uh, Howard's campus. And that's where the president can sit. How about we do that? That would be something. Uh, so my news this week is about Rite Aid. So Rite Aid, this is a Reuters investigation. It's called Rite Aid Deploy Facial Recognition Systems in Hundreds of U.S. Stores. Uh, Reuters did an investigation and saw that uh, across 200 stores in the United States, Rite Aid had installed uh, facial recognition systems so that they could track people who had previously done something wrong in one of their stores. So that if somebody came in and they stole from a different store in a different state or even from that one, that the facial recognition system would pick it up, it would flag the security people, and it would let them know that something had happened. After Reuters started asking around, Rite Aid is like, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. You know, this isn't what we believe in. Uh, And you can imagine that stores in more impoverished areas were nearly three times more likely than those in richer areas to have the facial recognition cameras. You also can imagine uh, that places that were poor and had less white people were much more likely to have the equipment too. And, you know, we've talked about on the pod before is that facial recognition systems consistently do poorly when doing anything about black people's skin, like black people, brown people's skin, like it wasn't built for it. It doesn't work. A lot of false positives. So people, even if it was supposed to do the right thing, uh, which we disagree with the surveillance state, it is triggering the wrong people, the wrong, like it's just not working, right? But the other thing is you think about what happens when, you know, the article talks about other places like the Walmarts, other big brands are like, well, this is cheaper for us, right? This is easier for us to do facial recognition than hire a million people or put people's photos up. But what happens when you create a system of people's photos photos in low-income communities and Black communities all across the country. Private data, we have no clue who you're selling it to. We don't know what you're using it for beyond this moment. There is no way in the world that Rite Aid had that much footage from that many stores, and the only thing they used it for was to see if a previous person had committed a wrongdoing in their store. I just don't believe that in any way. I think that they probably sold the data to some people, shared the data for something, looked at people's patterns in the store. Like, I just can't imagine that's the only use they use it for. So even though they have supposedly stopped today, what happens to all that data? Where'd that go, right? And and who? what other big stores are using that, especially in the time of COVID, uh, when you think about there is actually just less traffic outside, which means that it's probably even easier to get people's faces on camera because they have to be six feet apart, right? They have to be, like, you don't, you don't have to deal with crowds of people anymore for facial recognition systems. You actually have people like looking straight to camera, not obstructed. So it's like, this is a moment where like, if that technology is deployed, it probably has more of a reach than it's had in a very long time. Uh, So those are the things on my mind, but I was fascinated by it and I wanted to bring it here. Yeah. I mean, this is another troubling and worrisome like development in facial recognition technology. And I'm just thinking about all of the ways in which this will interact with law enforcement where if it scans you and you know thinks that you are a person who may have like shoplifted in a previous occasion or didn't fully pay for this thing when you're auto checking out what if it calls the police right or it automatically flags you in a way that sets off some alarm that you end up you know either it's you know loss prevention that intercepts you or the police and how we've seen that situation again and again and again escalate uh, into situations where people are killed or arrested or harmed um, and just how these systems make it even more likely for that to occur, automate that process in a way that it's no longer even up to discretion of the person uh, who's, you know, the security guard or whoever's in the store. Instead, it could be an automated process that automatically brings in 
uh, in intervention in a way that um, just makes the problem even worse and reinforces existing biases and discriminatory treatment in policing and in general. So this is wild, and I'm, I'm imagining that it is not limited to Rite Aid, that it is probably, I mean, there are so many different stores that are all sort of in the market for similar technology, loss prevention, like it is a, a whole industry. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this is more widely being used by a number of big companies um, and that just magnifies the risk, particularly to black folks uh, who are just shopping in these stores. Even if it doesn't escalate to police involvement, there was a brother, a video of a brother uh, who was identified by the Rite Aid cameras. And he asked to see the picture that it said that he looked like. And when he looked at the picture, he didn't look anything like the person on the picture, except they were both black. And he said, you know, I'm a father. Um, The store is in my neighborhood. My neighbors are in the store. My kids' friends and their parents are in the store. And I look like a thief, right? And, you know, it wasn't me. And I was asked to leave the store. And I was embarrassed. And Rite Aid never said sorry or anything. And I think we've got to figure out even at the very low level, how we hold these uh, retailers accountable for making mistakes that have significant consequences for people. Sorry, you didn't see my air quotes around mistakes. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pot Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And here's an update from that about what's going on with the protests and the unrest across the country. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Netta, and thanks for tuning back in. 
I know usually I go in on how I'm feeling, but this week I'm just honestly just a little tired, um, a little fatigued, and um, really just trying to reconcile thoughts and feelings about six years ago in Ferguson and the recent news that just came out of St. Louis. So I, I think I just have like a protester, activist, whatever the fuck you even call this, fatigue. <laughs> I am just truly, truly worn out. But most of all, St. Louis and Ferguson have just been on my mind a lot. Ferguson was back in the news late last week when St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell announced that he would not charge former Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson in connection to 2014's murder of Michael Brown Jr. In a surprise announcement late Thursday, Bell announced his decision, which he said was five months in the making. During the press conference, Bell said he re-examined evidence from the previous investigation, concluding that not enough evidence existed for a conviction. He told reporters, this is one of the most difficult things I've had to do as an elected official. Michael Brown's death exposed to the nation a deep-seated and long-standing pain felt by the greater St. Louis community and the entire country. It is truly impossible to explain how this feels. But by the time you hear this, the six-year anniversary of Mike Brown's murder will be a mere five days away. And I can't help but feel that the timing of all of this feels like just an awful political stunt. Because who does this serve? Definitely not the needs or wishes of those who took to the streets for more than 400 days to protest Mike's murder and the numerous other acts of brutality that took place in the years leading up to it. Maybe it's a subtle nod to those who always felt Mike deserved his tragic fate and that the first black prosecutor won't rock the apple cart too much. Business as usual, just with a black face pulling the levers of power. Bell's decision doesn't come in a vacuum, and I'd be lying if I told you it didn't feel like an old wound was ripped open so that salt could intentionally be poured into it. It hurts. This hurts. And I believe in calling a thing a thing. I will never not tell of the beauty of my hometown the days following Mike Brown's murder. The community was something I had never seen before but always dreamed about. Unfortunately, it happened because we were fucking tired. We were tired of police in St. Louis constantly harassing, assaulting, and murdering black people. In many ways, not much has changed in the last six years. While it's much easier to organize and protest against Trump and Republican administrations, calling a thing a thing demands that we remind the world that police brutality and the squashing of dissent is a bipartisan activity bound together by white supremacy and preservation of the status quo. When Darren Wilson took 18-year-old Michael Brown Jr.'s life and when the Ferguson police and first responders left Mike Lane in the street on Canfield for four hours to send a message, the area was almost entirely under Democratic control. Obama was in the White House. Claire McCaskill was in the Senate. Lacey Clay in the House. Jay Nixon occupied the governor's mansion all Democrats and Democratic leadership, as much as they attempt to empathize with the anger felt today, purposely failed us six years ago. It was under Democratic leadership that sent in the National Guard to occupy a section of St. Louis County for weeks. It was Democratic leadership that permitted tear gassing of protesters, an act banned by the Geneva Convention night after night. It was Democratic leadership that watched as police locked up and abused reporters, trampling on our First Amendment rights. The Constitution might as well have been written on used toilet paper at this point. We were repeatedly arrested, and at one point, we weren't even permitted to stand still. The ACLU sued St. Louis City, county, and state police. We had to fight in court for the right to stand still for more than five seconds just to protest. All of that under Democratic leadership. All of that with a black man in the White House who once said if he had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. It's impossible to overstate how much it hurts when the leadership failures come from people who look like you. People who claim to have your best interests at heart until shit hits the fan. While the Elsie household is a voting household, 
Those 400 plus days in Ferguson were a cruel reminder of why people do choose to opt out of this process altogether. Ferguson was an occupied territory on American soil. From kindergarten through high school, I was thrown into the myth-making that this was the land of the free and that dissent was patriotic. As a young adult, that was ripped away. I did not feel like I was in America. This was not America. This was the shit I'd seen other countries say they've experienced when American armies show up. Only the army was at my home. It was on West Florissant, across from Crystal's Nails, my mom's favorite nail shop. <laughs> when she was alive, she loved Crystal's. When you are abused by Republican and Democratic administrations alike, who can you trust? That's why Bell's decision, while not surprising, is hurtful. Black St. Louisans are used to the political failures, and this is just one more example of that. One more example for those skeptical of the political system that our votes do not matter. Wesley ran explicitly on being a friend of the movement. His campaign organizers were largely made up of protesters who do actually believe in working with those who want to work with us. A central part of his platform was getting justice for Mike Brown Jr., it was that portion of his platform that he used to earn the support of Leslie McSpadden and Mike Brown Sr., Mike Brown Jr.'s parents. I was at his election party in 2018. I saw Wesley shake hands with Ferguson protesters. I heard Wesley get on that stage and give us a very half-hearted, lackluster thank you. After nearly three decades of Bob McCullough being the head prosecutor, Wesley Bell took advantage of the moment and the movement. He promised to be different. He galvanized people who were deeply skeptical of the system. People had been abused and failed over and over. People who typically do not vote. People pinned their hopes on Wesley Bell and Wesley Bell failed the people. I reread old quotes on what my expectations were for Wesley Bell. And I want to be clear that they were never high. However, I did think that he'd keep his word to the family of Mike Brown Jr., which would require a new investigation taking all evidence into account versus taking Bob McCullough's botched investigation to be an absolute fact. Wesley's inaction unlocked a difficult pain that so many of us from those days experienced. The losses, the deaths of fellow protesters. It also, it just really makes me hopeful though, to revitalize what we're absolutely good at, organizing. While it will be an incredibly heavy lift to convince skeptical voters to turn out when Wesley Bell is on the ballot for re-election in 2022, he can expect the favor to be returned. The same way we organized, door-knocked, and rallied even first-time voters and Black folks who will never come out on an off year to get Bob McCullough out, it will happen to Wesley Bell too. The people will always have the final word. And on that note, I'm just going to say I'm amazed that we made it to six years. I'm blessed to have made it alive to six years. And I truly just appreciate everyone who came out their house on August 9, 2014. Shout out to Brayden, Taylor, Larry, James. Oh, my goodness. Bree, all my friends that I left the house with on that first day. I will never forget y'all. Love y'all so much. And I'm so proud of us that we made it this far. Till next time, see you guys later. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Emma and Zoe from Emilio, the nonprofit that's disrupting the communication space around communicating with incarcerated populations. The way they think about the work is so interesting, and I learned so much from them. Here we go. Emma and Zoe, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, so I uh, I, I want to learn about Emilio. We had a call not too long ago, and I was like, this is fascinating. I like never heard about this. Let's talk about disruptive things in the incarceration space or the end of incarceration space. Uh, can you talk to us about what brought you both to Emilio as a solution? So I'm a student at Yale Law School. Uh, but prior to that, I was getting my intro in criminology from the University of Cambridge, and I was studying the, the history and the causes of U.S. mass incarceration. Uh, at the end of my work there, I realized that a lot of the policy solutions that are being promoted to drastically change the sizes of the U.S. criminal justice system is just going to take a long time to happen, primarily because we don't have one justice system. We have 51 different systems, and underneath that, we have thousands of county jails. Um, so I was looking for ways to have an immediate impact. My first experience with the criminal justice system was that uh, a handful of my friends growing up were incarcerated. Uh, so it's always been an issue that I have a passion about, and I was looking for ways to support our communities and families of my own. I kind of stumbled onto the issue of prison communication just through reading reports, prison policy initiatives, and a lot of articles on the issue. Uh, and I found that it's an area that a lot of solutions aren't being offered in. So right now, what we have is uh, primarily two companies that dominate the prison communication space, Global Tower and Get and Secure It, and they're charging exorbitant fees to, to families, just to stay and talk to their loved ones. Uh, so my idea was, you know, it's free for us to communicate uh, on Zoom or through Facebook and all these other communication channels, but some of the most vulnerable people in our community are, are charged sometimes upwards of $25 for a 15-minute phone call. So I wanted to try to solve this problem by building a free communication alternative. Our vision is to radically disrupt this space by offering free technologies to the 27 million family members or loved ones who have incarcerated relatives. Yeah, and for me, I had spent every weekend during my time at Yale tutoring and mentoring at a youth incarceration facility. And one of the really nice things is that they had a graduation each year and people would come up and they would give speeches and they would always have one theme in common, which was that they were grateful to their families for the support that they had offered them. And so when I learned in a Yale Daily News article that my boyfriend Jordan sent me, that there were exorbitant fees that were blocking the way from people communicating with their loved ones. I was shocked and immediately reached out to Zoe, who got me started working with Emilio uh, right away. And I'm, I'm so happy that he did. What is Emilio? So we're a tech nonprofit that provides free communication tools to uh, anyone who wants to communicate with the incarcerated, primarily family members uh, and reentry organizations. So we have two core products. Uh, one is our lettuce tool. And our North Star product is free video conferencing. So what Letters does is it converts uh, text, photos, and other things into snail mail. And so we, we print and mail this to uh, correction facilities all around the country. So well, one of the things that I first realized was that there's no barrier to entry in that space. So anyone can send a letter, but there are tons of pain points. Uh, oftentimes, the prison addresses are, are physical addresses are different from the mailing addresses. It's hard to find inmate ID numbers. And, and, you know, in the 21st century, not a lot of people want to sit down and handwrite letters. Um, and, and because there are, there are over 3 million children and incarcerated parents, uh, we wanted to make it easy and efficient for them to also communicate. So we, we built a, a web app, and we're going to be launching our mobile version of the service uh, in the middle of August. And, yeah, so right now we sent uh, about 30,000 letters all across the country. Uh, we have close to 8,000 users who are using the service to, to basically communicate with their loved ones completely free of charge. Uh, but our North Star is free video conferencing. We, we never want to replace in-person visitation, but because prisons are so far from, from family members, we, we want to be able to offer another tool, another way that people can contact uh, the incarcerated. Uh, so we've landed a pilot site uh, at County Jail in Pennsylvania, where we're going to be, be launching the first free uh, video conferencing service uh, in, in the country. Uh, and the idea is that we will then scale up from there. Our business model is to offer these pilots and then 
contract with county jail and, and Department of Corrections uh, to be able to provide this uh, long term. What would you say are some of the myths about the way the communication apparatus works with regard to prisons and jails? Yes, one of the myths is that DOCs and county jails are not looking for alternatives, so that global telling, securists, and JPEG completely dominate the space, and there's no way for any new entrants to come in and disrupt it. One thing we've learned is that sheriffs, DOC officials, are looking for alternative tools. A lot of them recognize that by making calls so high, the recidivism rates are going to remain up to very, very high. Um, so there's a lot of momentum in this space. We've seen that New York City, San Francisco has banned for-profit calls. There are also 11 states that don't have commission teams. So what that means is that those 11 states aren't getting a cut of the revenue from Securus and Global Tel Link, and they're looking for cheaper services. And so, yeah, one of the greatest myths that we found when we were talking to foundations, we were talking to two people early on, was that they just thought that there's no way for us to get into this space and disrupt it. Um, but we, we found that that's not really the case, that, uh, as I mentioned, tons of uh, facilities, uh, especially progressive wardens and sheriffs, are looking for free alternatives that will help them improve communication with the being cross and independent. Yeah, I would just add also that one myth I found is that it's just not that expensive. So people are used to messaging, using WhatsApp or sending letters, and they say things like, well, isn't a stamp these days, you know, just 55 cents? But for some people, that's prohibitively expensive. Um, and so we have users who are deciding regularly between buying medication or sending letters, and we're kind of taking away that choice from them. Um, another myth is that anything is free. So what people have found is that oftentimes their loved one is given a free tablet, but then each music download is $2 and each picture sent costs four stamps. And so we're trying to make the first actual free alternative. And a lot of our process has been around building trust that there's no strings attached. Our letters and pictures are actually free. How do you deal with people who are like, okay, we get it. You're sending letters to people, but you know, email is... It's just quicker. It's faster. You know, I'm somebody who uses JPay to, to stay in touch with somebody I know who's incarcerated. How do you help people understand the, the benefit of a, a written letter? Yes, we've actually yeah. found a lot of our users prefer written letters. Um, it's interesting. I think especially with pictures, it's really nice to have something to hold on to, to hang up, to pass around, to show people. I think especially right now when visitations have been canceled and phone calls are limited, having something that reminds you of your loved one with you is something that's really nice. And also because it's free, I think people are willing to wait a little bit longer to receive that message as well. Our North Star product is video conferencing, which will have a messaging component. So we want to be able to offer both. For users who love to be able to send photos and intangible artifacts, their family members, letters is always going to be a product that they can use. Uh, but for folks like you who want more quicker communication, um, we're going to be offering uh, video conferencing and, and messaging as well. It is sort of interesting to think about uh, what you just said, Emma, is like you get to keep the letter, right? You might not always get to keep the tablet or like might not have access to email, even if it is technically quicker. Uh, and I think about somebody I know who's incarcerated who, for no fault of his own, got moved to a different part of the jail. And, you know, he doesn't have access to a tablet. And, like, I do think about what would it be like if his letters were able to travel with him uh, is a much different prospect. Are there any things that you learned in this process that were surprising to you or that are just interesting? Yeah, definitely. I think we've learned kind of how many barriers there are that we never even realized. So, for example, we have one user, her name is Carol She's completely blind, and she had never sent a letter to her nephew before because she was embarrassed about her handwriting. Um, or we have several users with arthritis who had never written letters because they found that it gave them pain. Or we were talking a couple days ago to a man who works at the Center of Justice at Columbia, and he was saying that he never got letters from his daughter because people are too used to texting and wouldn't take time to do it. We knew that the product was good and that it was helpful, but I think that we never even understood the full scope of kind of what was blocking people from sending letters, whether it was not knowing the address or being stuck in quarantine, like one of our users is abroad and not being able to even physically be near their loved one. Um, and so I think as we've gone, we've only seen kind of the greater need for our services, and that's really kind of what's pushed us to expand and to grow and to improve the product every day. Uh, one thing, but one thing we've learned is that sometimes users don't know what to say. Uh, they want to communicate with their loved ones, but they don't know how to start the conversation. So a lot of users have been asking us um, to provide them a library of jokes, photos, scenery that they can send to their loved ones. So in the mobile app we're releasing soon, 
people are going to have access to, you know, a, a show library of ready-made quotes, inspirational messages that, that they can send um, to the click of the button. And have you seen any changes with regard to coronavirus? You know, how does that impact the way you think about your work? Yeah, so we, we actually launched right at the onset of COVID. We had been developing the app, but as soon as prisons stopped prohibited visitation, we felt that we needed to launch this thing right away. Emma started reaching out to Facebook groups that are dedicated to incarcerated people, and really just started introducing our work to them. So, so, so we really were born during COVID because right now some of our users actually aren't able to communicate with their loved ones at all because phone calls at some facilities have been severely restricted. Uh, and as we mentioned before, costs are extremely high. Right now, if you don't have the person's invitation and you have to make you know a dollar a minute phone call, it's incredibly important that the users have access to free alternatives. So we found that our users have been incredibly grateful to have something else to turn to. While you know they obviously want to see a loved person, we found that the letters has been uh, incredibly useful right now for a ton of people who don't have any access. Yeah, I would just use one of our users kind of uh, tell as an example. She used to call her husband four times a day, and then phone calls were limited, and now phone calls are completely banned, and there's a 23-hour lockdown at her husband's facility. And so she hasn't been able to hear his voice in about a month, and letters have really become the one way that she communicates with him. So it's kind of more important than ever. Um, The other thing I would add in terms of the effect of COVID has been that a lot of in-person programming has been canceled by organizations. And so that's been one of the things that has launched our Letters for Organizations service, where we not only connect incarcerated people to their loved ones, but also to organizational resources and kind of work with them to find ways to continue doing their educational programming or whatever programming they offer when they can't actually go inside. Because of COVID, a lot of facilities are experimenting with other methods. So in Pennsylvania right now, uh, the entire DOC is using Zoom. Uh, It's an ad hoc service that they're using, but it's putting a lot of burden on their correctional staff. So basically what happens is free world uses emails, sends an email to a DOC official, and that person will schedule uh, a Zoom session. And so what we're seeing that because of COVID, a lot of these facilities are looking for for alternative methods. Uh, We've been in talks with with a county jail in in Arlington, uh, county jails in Colorado. They're just looking for alternative ways to increase contact. And so because of that, we've actually found that the officers, correctional officers and DOCs are a lot more receptive to our free video pilot. So we're really excited to, to continue to get in touch with people and develop more support um, for that service. What's next for you all? Like, what's your vision? What's like, what is the next big thing? Or like, how do you expand this work so that we can chip away at JPay, Securus, and all the other uh, big companies that are exploiting people? Yeah, so the, the core of our vision is decarceration and decommercializing incarceration. So right now, JPEG, Secure, they have a stranglehold on our communication. But our vision is to completely get rid of them. You know, right now, a lot of people feel there's no other way. Um, but what we found is that uh, county jails, DC officials are looking for alternatives. So if we provide them with that alternative, we provide them a free service, they're going to be excited to use it. One thing we can do is continue to push legislation to make all communications free they still need another service. They still need someone else that actually cares about users, that's committed to decarceration uh, and, and not profiting. That's, that's a really profound area that, that we think that we can help uh, the broader criminal justice reform movement. Yeah, I think also just kind of in the shorter term, what's next is trying to get our app out to as many people as possible. So we're moving from a web app to a mobile app. And like Zoe said, we have about 8,000 users, but we know that, you know, 2 million people could be on our platform. And so trying to find creative ways to get the word out um, and making sure that people know that there's an alternative so that they don't have to spend, you know, 50 cents on a message. They can send a letter and a picture for free right now. What is your pitch to users? So there are going to be a lot of people listening to this who might use JPay already like me and, and didn't even know there were alternatives. There are other people who sit in like, how can I help? What's your, what's your message to people? So there are two ways that you can support us. I wanted to spread the word. There are 27 million Americans who have loved ones that are incarcerated. Right now we have about 8,000 users. We spent 31,000 letters to the correction facilities. But there's so much more work that can be done. If you have a friend with a loved one who's incarcerated or you know someone in your network that can use this service, introduce them to Emilio. Simply go to www.familia.org. Another thing that you can do is to reach out to your legislators. Organizations like Work Rises are really pushing this movement forward, but they need support. They need people to write to their legislators. Uh, we know right now that 71% of Americans on polled support through prison communication, 
But the more your legislators hear about this, the more that they see the support is there, the more likely that our service can gain traction uh, in their locality. But also funding. We're a nonprofit tech startup. We're bootstrapped. Uh, although we do have funding right now from Mozilla, uh, the Robin Hood Foundation, and Smith Futures, we're looking to scale our impact nationwide. Uh, and in order to displace uh, secure and global telling, we're going to need all the support that we can get. So, yeah, your, your support would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, and I would just add a few reasons that if you're listening and you do have a loved one who's incarcerated, why you should try us out and kind of move away from JPay or CoreLinks. One reason is that we have some really cool features. For example, we've centralized all the inmate locator databases. So if you don't know the address where your loved one is, it'll be really easy to find it. Another is that we have a memory lane feature, which is really cool. So you'll be able to go back and see the messages that you've sent in the past. A lot of our users will go back and read these in times where they miss their loved one the most. And I think the key reason is that we're a young startup and what we care most about is our users. And so we're in constant communication with them and we're shaping our service every day based on what they want. So we heard they wanted games. We heard that they wanted poems. We heard that they wanted funny jokes. And that's what we're rolling out in a couple of weeks. So if you work with us, we'll grow with you and we'll respond to kind of all of your needs and all of your wants in terms of communication. Cool. Well, there we go. Um, and... I'll see y'all around. I can't wait to follow up so that I can learn more about the incredible successes you scale. Uh, and thanks for being able to, to be here today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.